morning again. It's a light to see you. One of the one of the great joys of being the pastor of this church, one of the great blessings of being the pastor of this church, is the fathers that are in this church. I could read off some statistics this morning that show that this is an anomaly. I don't think there's any need to do so. Because the fathers that are in this church and the fathers that are in churches around America even this morning aren't in those statistics. And I think we can find great uh, joy. We can find great hope for this nation uh, because of men, imperfect men, but men that are seeking to emulate emulate, uh, the perfect father. So I want to thank you, gentlemen, for your desire to lead your families in righteousness. Thank you for your desires to, to love the Lord and uh, the, the tremendous blessing and example that you are uh, to this family, uh, to this body of Christ. It's a joy to be able to have you with us. I want to recommend a book uh, for you this morning before we get into our sermon. Uh, it's a book I've been reading, uh, Daddy Tried. And we will be going through this uh, in, the, in the coming months here at this church, but I would encourage you to read it. It's called by Tim Bailey. Uh, it's been touted as the best book on fatherhood on the market. And I'm halfway through it, and I wholeheartedly agree. It is outstanding. Uh, This is actually my old pastor for three years uh, in high school. I was in his church uh, and didn't know he was this type of writer, but it is excellent, and I would encourage you to pick it up. Daddy Tried by Tim Bailey. We typically, as uh, you would know, we typically preach verse by verse through the Bible, just allowing the Lord to speak to us in the context of what is going on. But this morning we are going to look at topically the father of fathers, what it means to have God as our father. Christians uh, that would know the catechism, you would know the answer to this question. Why ought you to glorify God? And children might say something like this, because he has made me and takes care of me. And we refer to Psalm 23, that God is our shepherd and he cares for us. Or Psalm 139, that God creates us. The Apostles' Creed, many of you know the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, or the the Lord's Prayer. We would know that according to Matthew 6, our Father in heaven, or Luke 11, Father, hallowed be your name. Every day in private, but certainly every Sunday in corporate worship, saints gather and we declare together that we have a Father, that we are not fatherless, and that we have a perfect father. We declare that God is our father and we is our children. And that statement alone, that phrase alone, God is our father and we are his children, is glorious enough to fill all our time this morning, just thinking about that phrase. The fact that we are the heavenly father's children. And in that phrase, we're declaring that we're no longer identified by our earthly fathers, failures or successes, but rather that our identity now lies with the perfect father who never fails us. Do you understand that as a Christian? Your father has failed you. He's a sinner. But as a Christian, that failure by your father is not what identifies you any longer. You are now identified with the perfect father, the heavenly father. If you're taking notes this morning, I've got three points. Fatherhood created, fatherhood lost, and fatherhood restored. Fatherhood created, fatherhood lost, fatherhood restored. Go with me to the book of Genesis. Let's go all the way back to the very beginning. Genesis 1. If 
you have your Bible, turn there. If not, there's a Bible in the pew in front of you, all the way at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. And as you're there, let me quote from Ephesians 3, 14 and 15. Father, Paul praying to the Father, Heavenly Father, from whom every family gets his name. Now, if you go to the Greek, that word family gets his name is actually translated father. So if you went to the original Greek, it would sound like this. Praying to our Heavenly Father from whom every earthly father or whom every father gets his name. I have the title Father because I have a Heavenly Father. But how was fatherhood created? Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Fatherhood has been created, and it's a perfect fatherhood. Notice some of the duties of fatherhood. They're to have children. And they're not just to have children, they're to have a children that are to, are to be godly, to fill the earth in order, why? In order to fill the earth and, and subdue it, to bring it under God's rule and reign. If you look over in Genesis 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, or to, we are to work and to, and to keep this earth. That work is not cursed. It's actually a blessing to work. And we're to care for things. We're to lead. That's what that word subdue means. To lead this earth in subjection to God. To have dominion. There's a heavy sense of responsibility and care applied in the creation of fatherhood here in Genesis 1. A care marked by how God cared for them. As fathers, we're to be tender. We're to be careful. God is tender and careful with us. Notice we're to... to to have a leadership style marked by how God leads or led Adam there in the garden. An instructive, a patient, provisional. God is a provider and Adam was to provide for his family. God was to meet, God met their needs and Adam was to do his best in meeting the needs of his family. A marriage was created in this garden to be a display of God's relationship with the, in the Trinity, God the Father, Christ the Son, the Holy Spirit. And he created that marriage with proper roles and responsibilities that are to be in order. Adam and Eve, each made in God's image and each having equal worth and value and yet assigned different roles and responsibilities. Adam is to lead. Eve is to submit and help. But in that garden, it was all perfectly done and it all worked perfectly together because there was no sin, there was no selfishness and it was perfectly ordained for his glory. Look at Genesis 2, verse 7. Then the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living creature. In verse 15, as we've already read, he took the garden and took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. 
You, should may, you may surely, he gives him instructions, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone, it will make a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper fit for him. So Adam, God takes a rib out of Adam and he makes Eve. Imagine what it would have been like to be in a perfect place. It's nice and cool in here. It's nice and hot and humid out there. It was never that way in the garden. It was just, it was, everything was perfect. The relationships were perfect. Bodies were perfect. There was no sin. There was no shame. They walked with God. Everybody was perfectly loving. Everybody was perfectly gentle. There was no shame. There was no abusive words. There was no anger. The marriage was was perfectly unified. There was no selflessness in it. God was at the very center of that marriage. In a sense, they didn't even know what they had. Fatherhood was created. But fatherhood was lost in the garden as well. We don't know how long it was before fatherhood was lost. But if you just take Genesis 2, it seems to come at a very pretty quick amount of time. Look with me at Genesis 3. Verses 1 to 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You should not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the, but the serpent said to the woman, You'll not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and then he ate. And the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Sin entered the world and it came through Eve but Adam is responsible. He was in the garden next to his wife and the serpent came and instead of protecting her he gives in to her. In this book Daddy Tried Quote, Adam traded the fatherhood of God for the fatherhood of Satan. And that made all the difference. Since his fall, Adam's fall, every man is born into slavery to the devil. And the devil has become man's father. And here we remain today, murderous, lying rebels, lovers of evil rather than good, preferring Satan's fatherhood to God's. Adam, in giving himself a new father, the devil, corrupted fatherhood. He mars it and he taints 
the very nature and core of what it means to be a father. And the Bible is filled, is filled with story after story after story of that tainted fatherhood. Here's a few examples. Adam blames Eve in the garden rather than protecting her and leading her. In Genesis 12, Abraham denies selfishly that Sarah was his wife when they went into Egypt for fear that he would be killed because of how beautiful she was. Failure of fatherhood. Genesis 19, Lot offers to give to his, his daughters to a mob that they might abuse his daughters rather than protecting him. The failure of fatherhood. Genesis 38, Judah and the lineage, who is the lineage of Christ, is willing to have relations with a prostitute who wasn't actually a prostitute at all. But the willingness to do so, the failure of fatherhood. First Samuel 2, Eli's sons who were, who were priests, Hophni and Phinehas, and God rejects Eli in 1 Samuel 2 because of how he handles his sons and allowing them to sin so blatantly and repeatedly as priests. The first, in many ways, that we see in Scripture of, of the abuse of pastors over their sheep. The failure of fatherhood. In 2 Samuel 11, David and Bathsheba. In 2 Samuel 13, David's son Amon and his relations with Tamar, his sister, and how David handles his sons, Amon and Absalom, again and again and again, the failure of fatherhood throughout the Bible. Lost at the fall. Lost by Adam's sin. Your imperfect father is not the first imperfect father. You can blame Adam if you want to blame someone. If you want to assign intent or frustration or hurt and pain, Adam is the one who gets that. But realize that the imperfections, the sin of your father, your earthly earthly father has against you is nothing new or out of place. The sins of fathers against their wives and against their children as described in the Old Testament and continuing even today cause deep pain and generational consequences. And because fatherhood has been lost, we must never expect our earthly fathers to be what they have no capacity to be. Perfect. You can never expect your father to love you as you want or as you desire. In fact, because of sin, you can expect the very opposite. Quoting again from the book Daddy Tried, the fruit of Adam's rebellion against God the Father is woven through the pages of Scripture. And it is equally woven through the fabric of our own lives and the lives of our loved ones. Just like our father Adam, we too turn from fatherhood to embrace rebellion. The world today is the same father, same fallen, father-hating, and father-hungry world of yesterday. What does he mean? Well, what he means is, at the fall, a hunger was created for original fatherhood, as it was created, to be perfect. And yet a hatred was also created at the fall because original sin, original fatherhood, came in, I mean, original fatherhood was marred. So you've got this, this amazing dichotomy here. I'm hungry for what I ought to have rightfully, which is a perfect father, because that's the way it was originally created in the, in the garden. And yet now because of the fall, I hate fatherhood. 
We want our fathers to be all that they were intended to be before sin. And yet because of our sin, we often reject the authority and responsibility of our fathers when they try. It's, a, it's, this, it's this miserable and wretched combination of rebellion and yet, in a sense, good desire. If you are here and do not know Christ, the lost estate of fatherhood is your only hope. And the cruel irony is there's no hope in that. And what a pitiful hope, if you even have it, is the lost estate of fatherhood. Because of your sin, God is not your father. And the earthly father you will have will never be what you need or want. But that's the end of the bad news. That's the end of the bad news. Because though fatherhood was lost, God made a way for fatherhood to be restored. God has not left fatherhood to simply be lost and never redeemed for his glory. God had, had, an, in, had an individual love for Adam and all of Adam's children, including us. And in his love for you as Adam's son or daughter, he made a way to restore our relationship with him as our heavenly father. Sin broke it, but he's now made a way to restore it. Made a way for us to then call him father and he to call us his children rather than for us to call Satan our father. And in that provision of restoring fatherhood, he's now made a way for you to have a better and a more wonderful relationship with your earthly father. Fatherhood has been restored. Let's not think of fatherhood, the fatherhood of God, as only alive and well in the New Testament and not alive and well in the Old Testament. Look in Genesis 3 again with me. We have a promise here in Genesis 3 of the restoration of, of fatherhood by our loving father. Genesis 3, verse 15. In the curse that came from sin, God promises a restoration of fatherhood. Verse 15. I will put enmity, I will put difficulty, I will put at odds with between you and the woman. Talking to the serpent. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed you are above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity, I will put hatred, that's why we hate snakes, I'll put hatred between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's a, a, a prophecy, that's a foretelling of of one of the children way down the line of, that Eve was to have, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, that was to crush the serpent, that was to crush the devil, that was to come and restore fatherhood. God loved Adam, and God loves you as descendants of Adam, but his love cannot outweigh his holiness, his perfection, his righteousness. God's holiness demands that we are holy. God's perfections demand that we are perfect. God's righteousness demands that we be righteous. And yet, as children of Adam, we have inherited Adam's unholiness, 
his imperfections, his unrighteousness. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. And this happened at the fall. James Orr in in the commentary says this, It is an error, nevertheless, to speak of fatherhood as if the whole character of God was there insufficiently expressed. God is father, but equally fundamental is his relation to his world as its moral ruler and judge. From eternity to eternity, the holy God must pronounce himself against sin. And his fatherly grace cannot avert judgment where the heart remains hard and impotent. Fatherhood was lost at the fall, and at the fall, because of our sin, we have been condemned to die for our sin. And yet fatherhood is restored in the work of Jesus Christ because we cannot restore it. We are born physically as sinners, as children of the first Adam. But God, out of love for the first Adam, has made a way for us to be born again this time John 3, spiritually through the work of Christ on the cross and dying for us and rising again from the dead, we are born again. We are born this time by the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So really the question is, how do you be born again? How are you born this second time by the Holy Spirit? And the scriptures tell us that as well. By trusting that Jesus died on that cross for your sin. He paid the penalty for your sin. He took your sin and the imperfectness that you have and he put it on the cross. And in exchange, he gave you his perfectness. And he not only died but was buried in the grave for three days, but only for three days. Because God raised him again to life, and he raised him to life to prove that Jesus Christ was perfect and did not have to suffer the eternal punishment of death. That he accepted the perfection of Jesus Christ for us. That was, that was the full sin was paid for. Christ's perfectness was all that was needed. If we don't have Christ, the only way to pay for our sin is death and eternal separation from God. And even then, it's not enough because for eternity, we must suffer under the wrath of God. And yet, for those who put their trust alone and Jesus Christ work on that cross to save them from their sins and that he rose again on the third day and is now seated by God the Father at his right hand and that he will come again He is coming again to judge and bring those who have trusted on his work to be with him in heaven for eternity. If you put your trust in that, you are saved. You have fatherhood restored with the heavenly father. And we display that faith. We display that trust in God through repentance by turning for our sin and embracing God's ways rather than our own. Embracing the joy in faith of following Christ rather than the pleasure of sin. For those who trust in Christ and repent, instead of now being under the sin of the first Adam, we are not only saved from our sin, we are adopted as sons of the Heavenly Father. 
Romans 8, 12 through 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to deeds the death of the body, put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That word Abba translated basically daddy. The ability to have this, this, this close paternal fatherly relationship with him. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. See, that adoption comes with all the privileges of what it means to be a son. We're not only loved, we are disciplined. We're not only disciplined, we're pursued jealously. He desires that close relationship with us and pursues us jealously. We are pitied, we are protected, we are cared for, we are provided for. We have an inheritance. We have an inheritance awaiting for us in heaven. We're no longer under the power of sin. The payment for our sin is no longer death because Christ died. Well, sure, we have, we have imperfect bodies. This body certainly isn't perfect. But that death physically is simply a, a shedding of a, of a shell in some ways. Because then we go to be with God forever and with new bodies, perfect bodies. The main point that I'm trying to get across is that fatherhood, as was designed and intended in the Garden of Eden, was never going to be fully restored by an earthly father. So God, in his love for us, in his love for Adam's race, provided a way, again, for us to have a perfect father. Through the death and resurrection of his son, that we might be the sons of God, children of the father. God, as our father, Having the title of father gives us an understanding of this relationship that we now have with him as sons. Before I close here with just a few thoughts of application, let me encourage you that to understand how God relates to us by using our experience with our earthly fathers is to go about it backwards. The failings and the shortcomings of earthly fathers are to point us toward the perfect father. Rather than to say, well, I can't understand the perfect father because my father's imperfect. It's going about it all the wrong way. In fact, you understand the perfect father in light of the imperfections of your father. Do you see that? Rather than saying, I can't understand the perfect father because of my earthly father, you're saying, I can actually understand the perfect father even more because of my earthly father. We understand our heavenly fathers in the light of our perfect father. We can never understand our heavenly father in the light of our earthly father. It's impossible to understand the perfect through the imperfect. Though we can understand the imperfect through the perfect. And when we know God is our Father, our relationship with our earthly father radically changes. There's an exchange that happens. Even though they're imperfect, we, we can 
empathize or we, we agree with one of the verses in the great hymn, this is my father's world. This is my father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems so strong, we could say that though the wrong of our earthly fathers against us seems so strong, God is the ruler yet. Everything changes when we have God as our father. And how he deals with us as our perfect father should help us in understanding how we deal with one another and specifically for fathers this morning, how you deal with your families. And because how he deals with us is grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ, I trust that though how he deals with us is gonna be convicting, we'll also see the grace and the means and the delight in applying what he has done for us that we might imitate him. And I would say that this application applies for everyone, not just earthly fathers. Three, applica- three points of application in closing. First of all, that God, the perfect father, deals with us in love. First John 4, 8 and First John 4, 16, we're given the phrase, God is love. He deals with us perfectly lovingly. And the greatest manifestation of that love is certainly found in the giving of his son for a fallen race. God has shown his love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. And by way of application, we are to show love to our families, we're to show love to our wives, fathers, we're to show love to our children, fathers, not when they're lovely, precisely when they're unlovely because that's the way God has done it with us. Quoting again from the book, Daddy Tried, when we love as fathers, our love must be, the, must be like the love of God. We're not wait to love our wife, sons and daughters until they prove their love for us. If we did this, we'd be lying about the character of our heavenly father. Don't make your love for your wife and kids conditional on their love for you. Love them like God has loved you while you were still his enemy. There is much grace found in the love of God for us that allows us to extend love to those who aren't perfect. And that application is certainly for every one of us, but obviously specifically for fathers. He deals with us in love. Two more points. He deals with us in discipline. He deals with us in discipline. Greg Perch read for us this morning out of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 10. And you see there the exhortation that God has for us, that he addresses us as sons and he disciplines us. This is a word that is completely misunderstood today, this word discipline. Now, it's understood in the context of the sports arena. We all know what it means to discipline yourself to win to put yourself through what you need to go through in order to be as good as you need to be to be able to win the game. We understand that word in the sense of discipline. But in the sense of fatherly discipline, it's very misunderstood. It often is termed as just correction. But this word translated isn't just correction, it's also instruction. Looking at this son in love and saying, son, you missed that spot as you mowed the lawn. Instead of saying, get it right, mow it better. And we say, you know, this is how you follow that line. Let me help you see how to do that. That's discipline. 
And certainly it's corrective at times when maybe the 30th time he doesn't mow the lawn correctly, you step in and say, okay, we're going to do some things differently this time. But it's also instructive under, under a loving God. It's been said that possibly the times we feel God's love the most is when we are under his loving discipline, showing that he cares, showing that he says, Cody, I'm not going to let you do whatever you want to do and sin against me. No, I'm gonna put you under some correction, help you understand that the way you're trying to do things is not loving to me. And I love you enough as, my, as your heavenly father that I'm gonna correct you and instruct you through this word and through circumstances to help you see Things need to be done differently. He deals with us in discipline. Finally, he deals with us in jealously. Jealousy. He deals with us in jealousy. Wait a minute. Jealousy was a sin. It is from the human standpoint. It is from the fact that we desire that people approve us. Is it in the fact that we desire for people to love us rather than love God? Three verses Exodus 34, 12 through 14. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go. God speaking to the Israelites in Exodus. Lest it become a snare in your midst, you shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram, their idols. And God says, for you shall worship no other God, small g. For the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. God desires that we worship him alone because everything else is imperfect. Matthew 10, 35 through 38. For I have come to set a man against his father. This is Christ speaking. And a daughter against her mother. And a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. God, jealous that we have our fullest and greatest love and affection for him above everything else. Men, God is, God is jealous for your affection for him. More than your affection for your family. More than your affection for your wife. More than your affection for your children. And he's also jealous that you show your children and your wife that he desires that he alone be worshipped and glorified. And you not only been, he's not only jealous that you do that, he's chosen you as fathers in your individual families for that specific task. Genesis 18, 19. God speaking about Abraham. For I have chosen him. God has chosen him as a father. God has chosen you as a father that you may command your children and your household after God to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has chosen, what he has spoken about him. And in a sense, every one of us have been chosen for this task to display to the world that God is jealous for the affections of his creatures, to display the glory of our great God and Father who loves us and disciplines us and is jealous for our love in order that he might continually show us his perfect love. It's not jealous in that we just get abandoned. It's jealous that we could see his love for us even greater. And what a glorious task this is that we would all do, and especially fathers this morning. 
His glory is so great. His love is so deep. His relationship with us as Christians is eternal. And may we be faithful to proclaim the glory of God to our families. He is jealous that we do so as he is jealous for our affections because he alone is worthy. He alone is the one who is able to restore fatherhood to some semblance, even the messiness of it all, of, of amazingness. That we have fathers that we even slightly love is a wonder and a blessing from God. He's the one who has restored that through Christ. May we give him glory in doing so. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that you are a heavenly father. Oh, what a privilege it is that we've been not, not left with just imperfect earthly fathers, but yet you have chosen us, you've saved us by Christ, and now we are your children for eternity. You are a perfect father, and you then give us love for imperfect fathers. And you even give us the ability to see in their imperfection at times the love you have for us in their example of how they love love us, how they care for us. Father, I thank you for our earthly fathers. And I thank you especially for the fathers of this church that they desire to show to their families that God is our Father. We thank you that we can confess that together corporately this morning. And we pray that this week, as we would go about our day, as we would go about our duties, as we would go about our work, that we would be called, we would remember that you are our Father. When we worry, we would remember that you've got it all taken care of. When we have needs, that we would remember that you promised to provide our needs. That when we're when we're scared, that we're promised that you protect us. Oh, thank, Father, we thank you that you are so relational with us. In Jesus' precious name we pray.